Welcome back to In-Depth Commercial Real Estate. This show is an open discussion of the people, ideas, and methods behind commercial real estate. I'm your host, Paul Eaton. Our guest today is Scott Choppin. Scott is the CEO and founder of the Urban Pacific Group of Companies, a real estate development company focused on the urban townhouse rental housing model, which pairs private capital with multi-generational workforce rental housing. Scott, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Great to be here. Tell me about your path into real estate. So, uh, you know, I had a long background in family involvement, so I won't go into great degree on that, but basically I was exposed to real estate development fairly early, you know, sort of in my lifetime, but that didn't necessarily tell me that real estate would be of interest or how it would be meaningful for me. Like, you know, it's like when you're a kid, you know, you see something going on and whatever, you attribute something to it. And then years later, you go, oh, now I see what it is. So what informed my choice of a real estate career, maybe it'd be a different question to answer was after I got out of high school, I didn't really have a clear picture of what I wanted to do. And so I went and worked in the construction trades for a period of time doing electrical work. And that I made a lot of money. I was making more money as a, you know, 17, 18, 19 year old, really probably 18. Um, this is after high school. But I also like I got a sense that this was just not going to do it for me. Like I could see that I wanted to do much more than work in the trades and, you know, doing a electrical work is actually, you know, one of the better paying careers and, you know, sort of least labor intensive, you know, you get to use your brain more. All the guys that are plumbers will be insulted by that, by the way. <laughs> but basically then at that same time, I do a lot of reading. I've always have done a lot of reading. I came across a series of books that were like, you know, just your basic investment, real estate investment books. This would have been the late 80s that I'm talking about. So the books that we had available at the time were not like, you know, what we have today. YouTube didn't exist. You know, we didn't have, you know, Substacks and, you know, Medium and, you know, the internet didn't exist in the way that we know it now. So you'd find books. And so I came across some books that were like, the, you know, how to invest in real estate on the weekends kind of books, really basic stuff. You know, the, the books might even be looked at as to be exceptionally like, you know, just cringy, as my kids would say. But what I got from that was how to make deals, how to be a deal maker, how to create value, even in the sense of, you know, uh, buy low and sell high. Sure. But it was around multifamily and around how to find discounted properties, how to improve them. This is before we called it value add. This is what they were describing. And so when I took the family background in those books, I put them together. I go, oh, now I understand what this is. You know, I understood what my uncle and my dad both were in the business were doing. So like that then gave me the impetus to basically, you know, start my into my true career, which was, you know, go get a college degree, go work for professional real estate development companies to learn. And then eventually I knew, you know, really from that early age that I wanted to go out on my own, really be an entrepreneur is how I'd say it today, which, you know, ultimately, you know, those two things sort of came together in that decision and that path. You've been focusing on the urban townhouse concept. Why did you get involved in that concept? What are the uh, advantages? What's the niche involved and, and how is it going? Yeah. So if I forget any of those questions, Paul, remind me. So, you know, I'm a real estate developer. So we build new buildings, right? We take empty land or underutilized land. We build buildings on them. And, and you know, you mentioned you're doing industrial. So industrial development's actually probably one of the hottest, you know, markets across the United States. My choice was apartments, new construction apartments. And again, that came from watching what my dad and, and my uncle were doing. 
And so when I started this company, Urban Pacific, in 2000, we had focused on the urban infill niche. So it was building residential projects in urban locations that were like filling in blank spaces in neighborhood fabric, right? And, and, and in 2000, that was pretty cutting edge, right? People weren't doing that. They weren't going into downtown locations that, you know, how we've done it for, you know, given that entire 20 years. And so we, we had identified when I founded the company, this niche of building in the city. And that was, you know, really not a thing that people were doing in any way. And then, you know, fast forward over the, you know, that entire, you know, 20 year period, see 21 years this year. So for about 15 years, we did that, you know, infill development of apartments and other residential projects. About six years ago, there was an interesting little sort of flat spot in the market where we were building several new apartment projects in, we were sort of active in the Southern California and the Denver markets. Those were the two markets we were active in the time. And in both those markets, there's this huge wave of new projects coming online. Right. All the big guys, you know, you're in DFW. So Trammell Crow would be a name you're familiar with. I mean, they were just, you know, it's the market like, you know, firmed up enough post, you know, 2008 recession. Everybody was descending into these markets. And that was really our signal to go, okay, this is a time to be careful, time to be cautious. And we were, you know, we'd done really well in a number of projects. And so it really started to look to me like, okay, if, if Trammell Crow and Holland Partners and JPI and Amley and, you know, all those big companies were coming in, we needed to be doing something different. Like we needed to not want to compete with those guys. You know, cost of capital was lower. Yeah, financial right. cost was bigger. Lending relationships, equity, you know, volume, build costs, that kind of thing. And so I really went back to my original. So when I first started working for other companies post-college, I worked for a company that did affordable housing, meaning ground up development of apartments in the affordable housing domain. So this would be low income housing tax credits, government subsidized apartments. I spent several you know, successful years in that career doing that. And so at the time that we started to think about doing something differently, I, I was like really of the mind, like we got to be in some domain where everybody else isn't. What's some part of the market that's, you know, underutilized, underserved, you know, low supply, high demand. So affordable housing would have been one of those choices. But that's actually people who know that business is incredibly competitive itself. You got, you know, very competitive. Yeah, very competitive. A lot of really great companies, you know, a lot of friends that, you know, colleagues that I work with professionally that are just like, you know, really masterful in that space. And so we go, we don't want to do really like either. We don't want to do market rate luxury podium studio one bedroom product, but neither do we want to go back and do affordable housing. And not that there's anything wrong with it, but like we were looking for space that was, it was like an open, you know, ground. It was like right. less competitive space. So we had this one project that we found that I ended up buying the land you know, to develop and we bought it really inexpensively. And this property gave us the capability to, we had a limited unit count that we could put on the land, but the size of the unit was virtually unlimited. I mean, other than what we could physically fit on the ground. And so like at the time we were doing, we had finished a lot of studio, one bedroom, two bedroom podium projects. And but we said, well, we could do more than that. The, the architect and I spoke and I go, well, how big of a unit can we do? You know, three bedrooms? He goes, ah, I think we could do four. Okay, I've never, I've never done a four-bedroom apartment unit in the, you know, in my career and, and running or Pacific. So I said, okay, let's go for it. So he came up with a two-bedroom townhouse concept, four-bedroom, three-bath with a two-car garage. 
And that was our first project in what turned out to be the UTH program. And a couple of things happened that were really unique that really informed us to go further with this. We finished the project, we sold it to an investor, like they were going to own it long term. We, you know, we got paid and we got a really great cash offer with a specific condition that we not rent the units because they wanted to put their own tenants in. They wanted to buy it from us, empty lease, you know, tenant themselves. I go, okay, great. You know, my partner okay. at the time, we're like, you know, cash offer, we don't got to rent it. Great. That's like wonderful. So we had underwritten the units at 2650 for these four bedroom units. And the new owner turned around and put them on the market at 3250. Wow. I called my partner in the deal and I go, dude, what do we miss? Like, do we miss something here? Like, you know, I mean, I knew there was some upside, but 3250 and he's like, man, they're not going to get it. So they ended up renting in a range from like 2950 to 3250, but well above our pro forma, like, you know, three to $500 a month over our pro forma. You go, that's noteworthy. So we really started looking at this and talking to people about it. And we had had conversations as we were building that specific deal. And what we basically sort of got onto, there was this like idea of family housing, of renting multi-bedroom, larger townhouse units to families that wanted to live in these infill environments. This happened to be in downtown Long Beach, Long Beach, my hometown in California. And so we go, okay, let's start doing more of this. And so our next project, we tightened up the footprint, went three stories instead of two, and we went to five bedrooms. Like I passed the architect and I go, well, what's our limit here? You know, how many bedrooms could we fit? And we sort of toyed with the idea of six and I thought, man, that's like a lot. You know, I mean, that seemed like a little bit crazy to me, although five bedrooms is, you know, probably slightly less crazy to people. So we settled on a three-story townhouse, five-bedroom, four-bath, two-car garage, laundry room. You know, one of the rooms is a master, you know, has a master suite, you know, with an ensuite bathroom. And then particularly what we ended up doing is putting a ground floor bedroom bathroom on uh, for making this multi-generational. So what we started to identify was that the tenant profile, the tenant avatar of this was working class, multi-generational families that made too much money to live in the affordable housing because they were overqualified. They were pooling their expenses and incomes in the family group. They didn't live in the studio one bedroom unit. That's like the sexy downtown mid-rise product. Too many people. Too many people, right? Wasn't, you know, and they weren't like, that wasn't their lifestyle. They weren't looking for sexy downtown. They wanted like, I need housing for my family. That makes sense. It's close to my job. And so anyways, out of that first few projects, we developed the idea of what ultimately we gave a name, Urban Townhouse, which is now classically, we do all of our projects with this five bedroom, four bathroom, townhouse model, same unit, like production building, like a home builder would, and, and design you know, each project with a mix of you know, those five bedroom units. It would seem that that tenant would naturally want to have a single family home, but in some markets, they simply cannot afford that product. And this is a great substitution to allow a multi-generational home to have a new place to live yeah. at a reasonable price. Yeah. I always used to tell our leasing teams in the beginning, I said, hey, if you, you, know, if you have a family that is looking at a house and looking at our unit and we're equal, they'd always choose the house. Sure. You know, backyard, front yard, white picket fence, you know, garage, you know, the American dream, right? Even if in a rental mm. format. What's interesting is as we've rented, you know, now several of these projects, what we're finding out is that the people who come to us, they appreciate the size of the unit. They go, oh man, you know, garage and laundry room and four bathrooms, right? That in many cases, the four bathrooms is as important as the five bedrooms, right? Although mm. the bedrooms are where people live. 
But really, for the most part, people, they think of themselves as apartment dwellers. And I don't say that's bad or good. I just think that for most people in the in the you know professional real estate business, you go, oh, these like I would think houses would be a, like a, a comparable. And for the most part, these families they don't think of themselves as house dwellers. I think for the in California, that's probably the affordability issue. Probably just takes that out of play for them. They go, ah, oh, it's too expensive. And it is you know single family house with a big backyard, a big lot. It is more expensive than our offer generally. But a lot of times people go, oh, I was just looking for an apartment. And I came across yours and I saw five bedrooms. I man, I never even knew that thing existed. And then they come visit us and they're like, I don't, man, you know, isn't this a for sale unit? Don't we need to buy this? We're like, no, this is for rent, you know, designed and built to rent, but, you know, lives like a house. So as we develop this, we've really focused in on this key gap in the marketplace, which is a family style unit, working class families, multi earner families, importantly, like they have several income earners in the family share incomes and expenses, most often live multi-generationally. So culturally, you know, we'll have Hispanic families, Asian families, Indian families, although globally living multi-generationally is like the rule. And, you know, the United States is, you know, sort of the abnormal one that, that we're just sort of returning to multi-gen living, which was really classically, you know, before the 50s, probably how people more often lived, you know, even in the United States. How does the multi, what was the term you used, multi-wage? Household? Yeah, multi-earner household. Multi-earner household. How does that tenant react to a recession? Relative yeah, to yeah. A, maybe a, a two-bedroom or a one-bedroom class A typical unit that only has one wage mm-hmm. earner. Yeah. Sometimes two. I mean, if you're a married couple, but often it's one. It is an amazing difference. So there's a couple studies that we track. So Pew Research did a study in the 2007 to 2009 era. So, you know, during the great financial crisis, and they studied the movement of people like, you know, coming back together in their family groups, you know, like kids moving home, boomerang kids moving back with parents and the rates of that recombination. That's my term. They didn't call it that, but the, you know, you know, we have household, you know, new households forming, new household formation. This is the opposite of that. That's, you know, households coming back together. I call it recombination. And so the rates of that go up during recessions. As you'd expect, it's a defensive, it's an economic defensive mechanism to come back. And, you know, whether you're getting roommates or you're moving back at home, the rates of that go up. But in California, we have this interesting sort of double, you know, you know, sort of layered situation, which is we have already high, you know, housing costs and low affordability. And so that itself causes people to think about living, you know, multi-generationally or or coming together in an economic sharing lifestyle. And then in a recession, they're already sort of doing that. You could say they just do that, you know, more of that. So, you know, kids will move home, adult kids will come back. We see in-laws and grandparents moving in. That's one of the reasons why we do that ground floor bedroom bathroom, because, you know, like probably... 50 to 60% of our families have a, an in-law or a, a grandparent that's older and, you know, mobility issues may, you know, may be helpful for that to live on the ground floor. But so we have the short-term recession effect, right? And reaction to that. In fact, I call it recession resilient is the terminology I put to that. And that's the multi-owner household meets strong social networks. Now, often those go together, right? The, the cultural dynamic tends to, to have those already existing in, in that family dynamic. And so strong social networks means that their families, they have kids in school, 
their church is close by. They may be local from that area. And so they have extended family. Um, they're from there originally. And that's the like a description of our tenant avatar, if you will. And that's versus, say, like a Gen Z or a millennial person who's young and very mobile. Maybe they moved to Los Angeles for a job and they're you know from Dallas or they're young and they moved away by themselves. So they live in a single owner household. And that's a completely valid lifestyle choice, right? That's who they are naturally. They're young and they're mobile. They don't have kids. Mm. They don't have anything to tie them to the local, you know, social network and social fabric. I just say, I don't want to rent to those people. And really more what I say today is I really focus on families and the, and the ethics around family groups that happen to have, you know, an under service of supply of units in the development marketplace, which is great, like a social impact offer. But also, by the way, those families are incredibly resilient in a recession because they have multiple earners, they have strong social networks, you know, they come together and they form, you know, recombine in a, a tough economic environment. And, you know, we just say that's a preferable, you know, family dynamic that we'd rent to and we'll supply a housing unit to that family that serves that purpose. Can you walk me through a typical deal? You know, we're a developer. So, you know, we find land. Uh, we start with that. We'll often work with the local government to get the approvals in California versus someplace like Dallas. You know, uh, we have a much more difficult entitlement process. So going to get approval from the government, you know, if you need that to build your apartments. We always try to find sites that already have zoning that fits our criteria. So we skip that step. We'll design the units, we'll, we'll get those approvals, we'll go through plan check, then we, you know, hire, the way we work is we hire subcontractors directly, sort of like home builders do, you know, middleman GC. We'll, you know, bring the construction loan into play, close that, build it, and then rent it. We have a in-house property management team that, you know, manages both the leasing and ongoing management of properties that we hold. And then at the end, either we sell it or we hold it. If we sell it, we just, you know, straightforward, found a good buyer. If we hold it, we'll, you know, underwrite and fund a permit loan and then, you know, hold it. You know, really, we want to hold all these in perpetuity. That's our perfect scenario for us is, you know, we build these assets and hold them, you know, practically forever. And, and for two reasons. One is we can sustain the, you know, long-term service of the family dynamic, right? We're really oriented around that. But also from an economic standpoint, if tenants are recession resilient, then these properties are recession resilient, right? And then we become, as the owner, recession resilient. And then I'll add a third one, which is new, which is, you know, inflation that's here and growing and increasing, you know, hard assets like income producing, debt financed, uh, real estate is going to be highly advantaged in a high inflationary environment. So under land acquisition, I assume you're not really competing with the class A builders because they want different locations. And so you don't have to worry, but you're not really competing with them. So exactly right? Right. you're working workforce housing and that's a different area or different location. Totally, you know, it, it is, you know, if you, yeah, definitely against the, you know, your classic, you know, core developers, you know, the travel mm. of the world. So we're differentiating that niche, but you're exactly right. So the way we call it is we're like an A product in a B and C neighborhood. So we're not like hardcore war zone neighborhoods, although we, we look at those, we don't shy away from that. 
but we're neither are we in the super sexy, gentrified, hipster neighborhood with the, you know, boutique coffee houses. And nothing wrong with that. Again, those are valid. We just that's not a choice that we make. So we're in the in-between space, right? Like we're in that, you know, blue collar apartment centric neighborhood in Orange County or LA County. And, you know, these, in fact, the terminology I created, or actually I found somebody called it an urbanized suburb. So it's a Mm. suburban, you know, what would have classically been a suburban city or neighborhood in its original form, but because it's older has urbanized to some degree. So this would be, you know, cities like Fullerton and Orange County and LA County, Montebello, cities like El Monte in, in the San Gabriel Valley. These are older cities that have already been built out for decades, but have sort of become more industrialized, more higher density commercial, a little bit more apartments. But if you drove around it, you know, you'd see the major thoroughfares have these commercial frontages and maybe some industrial neighborhoods. But then behind that is the single family neighborhoods. It's really predominantly suburban but has these urbanized characteristics. And that's actually a preferable, you know, environment that we like to find. And then you're exactly right. We'll often go into neighborhoods that, you know, know particularly the for sale builders in California would be like the condo guys that mm-hmm. will infill condo projects, which includes some of the big public guys. They don't want to go in these neighborhoods and then nothing wrong with their choice. They're just like, they have to make a choice related to who their buyers are. And we'll get a little overlap. But off quite often, you know, we'll show up to like a site and there's nobody like us offering this land seller, this particular price. Now, you know, we're real disciplined in our offer price, right? Like we always do our residual land, you know, run numbers back into a land price that makes sense for us. And then, you know, we're, you know, we're easily rejecting 60, 70, 80% of sites that we either find our team finds or brokers will bring to us or we find on CoStar. And, you know, we've got a real solid, rigorous criteria and allows us to move through very quickly. And we're pretty brutal as anybody who's seasoned in the real estate development business. You got, no, 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 right? You know, so, you know, one out of 10 will, two out of 10 will make sense. And the other thing is we're okay to do a little bit smaller projects. So our sweet spot right now is between probably 30 and 80 units per project. I was a little bit smaller when we started in the beginning because that was the experimental phase. You know, we wanted to prove the model, but we've completed that now. So we're, you know, we're into several projects, you know, that are in the development pipeline now, plus some under construction. And then, in fact, we're in the process of raising a private equity fund to facilitate the development of entire portfolio of these UTH projects. So, you know, we've made the bet and are happy to be doing so philosophically to completely focus on the UTH model over the next several years and probably even beyond that. On your target tenant, give an idea of the percent of median household income for your unit. So we're really trying to, I mean, our preference is 80 to 120 of median income. So that'd be the okay. median income for either LA or Orange Counties. And those, those are published. You know, those come from the mm-hmm. same, you know, published standards as affordable housing developers use. But we're not like, we're not required to, you know, meet that. Like, you know, affordable housing development. You know, affordable housing. So it's, there's yeah, no Yeah, there's no competence, yeah. there's no subsidy, but we do regularly fall into that 80 to 120. So I might say like 80 to 150. Now, like a lot of people go, oh, 150, that sounds really high. But if you're, you know, a developer in New York or New Jersey or any particularly major city, going up to 150 is actually like a regular, like if you go to New York, 
like, you know, 140, 160 median income as affordable housing, like that's built into the, you know, that's like baked into the cake in those markets. It's a little bit more unusual outside of those major, you know, city centers. But there's a real, that's the middle. That's the, you know, yep. there's a term called missing middle, which was coined by a firm called Opticos Development. That talks about like middle density housing. So think like row homes. Uh, and our our product fits in that category. That Tim Versace and our on our capital team for the fund, he came up with the term of forgotten middle, which I really liked when he brought that. I was like, oh, that's perfect because really it's not only are we doing that missing middle architectural type, but we're also serving the missing middle uh, families, middle income families that are sort of forgotten. They're not the luxury class A. Gen Z millennial, and they're not the true affordable. So if you look at it from a marketplace, really nobody's serving these working class families that, you know, are usually highly rent burdened. I mean, we're easily, you know, 40, 50, 60% of income for most people. And then, so, you know, the way to think about it is our rents are averaging between probably 3,700 to 3,850 a month for a 1,750 square foot, five bedroom unit. And we're usually looking for two and a half to three X the monthly rent and incomes. Now, for some people, they go, oh, they do the math. They go, that's really high. But remember, you're going to have several earners bringing right. that income. You know, so, you know, if you have three or four earners that are making 30, 40,000 a year individually, that starts to be, that is now 120,000 or 150,000 a year of annual income. And so we start to get into those sort of categories. And again, people go, oh my God, 150,000 a year. And you go, well, one, it's California, <laughs> right? We're, we're, we're the most housing constrained, highest, you know, we have, I don't know, 18 out of the top 25 most expensive housing markets in the United States are all in California. Top 10 are all in California, by the way. And so we're, that's our environment. In fact, that's why UTH exists because we, you know, I'm a California native, you know, raised, been here my entire life, raised my family here. I've built my entire career here. And from that, you go, oh, this is just part of the fabric and we can either address it or not. And, and look, many people are working to address it. So this is no claim on, you know, people aren't doing enough. It's just the marketplace can't generate enough, you know, solutions to it. And particularly, you know, development wants luxury. You know, they got to produce highest returns. Affordable is subsidized, so they try to lower cost and, you know, there's no profit. There's fees in that environment if you're a tax credit developer. And so we're trying to, we are successfully, you know, threading in between those. Basically, the way I put it is we're pairing private capital up with a workforce housing model. And I'm happy to report doing it successfully. This is a, um, a model that um, is underserved. And so you're meeting a clear demand in the market. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about some of your returns on your past projects? Do you build to a certain yield? Yeah. So the way we underwrite is, you know, we want to have, you know, general feasibility from the initial underwriting in order to capture the deal. And I say that people who are developers go, of course, but you'd be surprised. A lot of developers, particularly if they're not as seasoned as others, you know, will take on deals that the profits may be marginal. And I go, if you start with a marginal profit, you're going to end up with, you know, no profit or you're going to lose. Right. So you know, any seasoned developer, like, you know, you build in more margin than you would likely. So we want to see some initial. So, you know, as a developer, we'll look for a certain NOI to cost. Um, we usually want to be six to six and a half, seven percent if we can get it. And that's if you divide the NOI that you generate annually by the cost, total cost to build that NOI to cost. Unlevered yield. Unlevered yield, right. Sometimes I call it the development cap rate. Right, which yep. is the cap rate when you finish it and stabilize it. That's the cap rate you're generating given the income and the cost. 
And then, you know, if you sell it, you're looking for a certain spread, you know, classically in the multifamily business, you want 150 to 200 basis point spread between your development cap rate and your, you know, sale cap rate. But really then, you know, we're focused on internal rates of return, you know, so we want to generate, you know, we're looking to generate generally 20% or above on a development deal in order to compete as a developer and raise capital versus, you know, if we're, as we go out in the investment marketplace, and it depends whether you're talking, you know, high net worth individuals versus institutions, you know, they're going to look at it slightly differently. The institutions are all totally organized around IRR. That's like their bread and butter. Mm-hmm. High net worth, you know, a little bit more cash on cash, a little bit more, you know, equity multiple. Institutions look at equity multiple a little bit as well. What I can share with you is we've generated a 23% internal rate return on the beginning set of deals which now will come through. We'll be at our sixth deal that we've built and rented and sold in this UTH program. And over that, it's 23. It's a little bit more 23 and some change to LP investors on those deals that we've built and rent and sold, you know, sort of merchant build style. And then generally, you know, we're looking, as I spoke before, to do long-term holds, you know, five years, minimally, we're really looking for 10 years and beyond, which I speak that because then IRR starts to be a little mm-hmm. bit more ethereal, <laughs> right? Like, right, we know right. operates in 10 years? What do we know rents in yeah. 10 years? And so mm-hmm. you do your projections and make some linear assumptions on rents, operating expenses and cap rates. What I can say is this, is every deal I've sold in, over the last 20 years that I built is worth, you know, in many cases, minimally two or three X what right. I sold it for when I sold it, you know, 10 years, 15 years ago. And that's all California stuff, a little bit stuff in Denver and, and Texas. So I think in the long run, two things appear to me. One is, you know, we'll continue to look for playing in underserved environments, right? Like we want to be in lower contested marketplaces. And I think, you know, workforce housing, certainly like one of the, you know, sexy new product categories in the multifamily world as is built to rent. And ours is sort of a combo model, those two. But the reality is in a place like California, our regulatory environment is so difficult and so constrained that that creates a natural, you know, Warren Buffett calls it a moat, right? It's Mm -hmm. a you know, mm-hmm. what? A, what's the word? I'm, you know, it's a disincentive to go right. newly into that market. Like if you're there and you have this moat that you're good. And so, you know, look, we're not the only California real estate developer. I don't make that claim, but we are one of the only ones. In fact, we're the only one that's building built to rent successfully over multiple projects and serving these family demographics. So this is a sort of like niche, you know, capturing of space that we really like to do. And I don't, you know, our regulatory environment is how to be undersupplied for decades, meaning, you know, difficult law and regulatory entitlement processes have suppressed housing. That's why we're the most expensive housing. That's not going to stop. I mean, we're in a beneficial, positive law environment where state law is changing to incentivize housing. But we've created this over probably 30 or 40 years. It's going to take us a while to, you know, dig out of that hole, and if ever. I mean, I'm hopeful, but... You know, I, I see the next, you know, 20 years as, you know, we're going to continue to catch up. You know, some studies have us be, you know, millions of units in shortfall across the state of California. Harvard, JCHS did a study and they put SoCal in LA and Orange counties at a million unit shortfall in certain income categories. I got due to a million units, like never. Yeah. And I'll, I'll be, you know, you and I'll be long gone before, right. <laughs> before that ever happens. So, and that's not a logic to not work on it. You know, what we do is, you know, is a small component, very small component part of that. 
but you know, I like we could do all that we could build, you know, thousands of thousands of units and, and do great service and, you know, like hardly even make a dent. I think it's a very interesting niche and I think it's got a long runway. I agree with you on that. I'll have to change, change up a little bit going forward. And you have any books that you recommend real estate yes. or otherwise? You said you mentioned you're a voracious reader, so yeah. So, so you know, you talked about Nassim Taleb and Anti-Fragile is a great book, Mm -hmm. and so some newer ones for me. They're not particularly new, but there's a book called The Bitcoin Standard, so that'll sort of give you some reference point on my view of the world on Bitcoin and blockchain and you know Web 3.0. But uh, Amos Safadine is the author of that, and then there's another one called The Sovereign Individual. And, I, and there's two authors and their names always escape me. But those, you know, if you look at the sovereign individual in Bitcoin, then that book will pop up and really talks about, I think it's really interesting for me. And I've read those books over in the last couple of years. And it really is, I think, instructive for the environment that we're in and an economic structure of that we've printed a lot of money. We're injecting a lot of stimulus into the economy and what effect that has. Now, everybody sort of, I think, classically knows that, you know, when you put more money in, that you're going to cause inflation. But there's several other second, third order effects that that come into place and can be instructive on, you know, why is our social environment the way it is? You know, why is our government the way it is? And, you know, what is the future of, you know, economics, of, of societies, of money, the future of money, right, relative to the, you know, fiat currency world. So those two books will really teach you a lot. And I think also what, what I was really enlightened by is just historical events that you didn't necessarily attribute to the way money was managed, but like the fall of Rome, as an example, can be attributed mm. to some degree to the debauch of their currency, you know, where, you know, in over a hundred or 200 year period, the valuation of their currency declined, you know, by, you know, almost a hundred percent. And, you know, that was then cause for like economic weakness and social unrest, which is one of the, you know, classic symptoms of debauched currency. Well, that's where we're at now. And I don't, I'm not happy to say that, you know, I, I consider myself to be a, a pretty patriotic guy. But we're at, you know, like economic reality is what it is. There's another book called The Price of Tomorrow. And the author's first name is Jeff. And I'm a blank on his last name. But this book's really interesting because he talks about as much as we're talking about stimulus and, and printing of money and cause of inflation. There's also an offsetting effect of deflation relative to the cost of technology or the advance of technologies causing deflation. So, you know, if you have your iPhone, right, you know, in the old days to put what's in here would have cost you, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars for a music player and, you know, a uh, a phone, if you could even get a phone that that did that kind of stuff. Now it's one device. This, this, you know, I don't know that this matches what, you know, used to have a room full of computers in the 50s, but, you know, probably darn close, if not exceeding. And so in The Price of Tomorrow, he talks about the advance of technology is a deflationary effect. So, you know, we have this money stimulus causing inflation. We have technology advancing. And look, we're in the most rapidly technological advancing period in human history, right? Artificial intelligence, robotics, you know, the advancement, you know, cryptocurrency, blockchain, web 3.0, I put in that in that same category. So those would be three books, not ever related to real estate, but you can take parts of what they talk about and apply them to whatever domain you're in. So as an example for us in the, you know, cryptocurrency blockchain environment, 
We're already working on basically providing tokenization of ownership of real estate assets of our own development projects where we'll tokenize those, you know, both our positions and the LP capital positions. And then those tokens can be, you know, they'll be the investors. That's their property. That's the evidence in the electronic format of their ownership of a hard asset. But those can be tradable. They're secondary exchanges for tokenized real estate. You know, people have been, if they're following that at all, their NFTs, you know, the sale of these art pieces. Somebody said, uh, what did they say? It's uh, they, they call the NFTs, that whole thing, storage, uh, you know, like a storage locker for your digital assets, whatever those may be. It could be art, could be mm-hmm. the sword that you need to buy in some game. It could be buying land in a virtual world, or it could be, you know, electronic ownership evidence of real asset ownership. I mean, Bitcoin is a as classic example of that, you know, you, you know, don't own any physical, you know, paper or asset. It's, you know, entirely represented in electronic format. That's the way that we're going in the world. So I always try to read these books and go, how can I apply it to what we're doing? You know, right. real estate development or like still, we're still building balloon frame buildings, you know, of, you know, a mm-hmm. hundred, hundred year old technology, real estate's pretty backwards in many ways. And so I'm always sort of on this like constant, you know, search for what's the next thing. Many of them we can't apply to real estate, but many of them that we can. So I'm always encouraging people to do that. Every time we do a deal and go through the title process, I wonder if blockchain will come in and uh, change the title process. I'm not optimistic about that (laughs) here in the U.S. However, I do think in the developing world, I think there's an opportunity to use that new technology. And are you not like, uh, you know, confident in that because there's so much built in, you know, cost and interest. Yeah. Like, you know, the title companies won't want to be in a hurry to do that. Right. They don't want to get involved. Which, you know, you could, you know, you can make the same claim as, you know, if you're Kodak in the seventies or whatever, you know, when, when people started going, look, Hey, electronic, you know, photography is coming. I'm with you. I think there will be a lot of resistance, but I also think that to some degree, like that that book, the you know, the price of tomorrow, that cost will drop so rapidly in some domains that right. those companies won't even have a choice. They'll just go out of business. Like Kodak, right? Or yep. you know, Blockbuster yep. using the, you know, the the well yep. trodden, you know, case studies. Yep. But I really think some company will get on board and it probably right. It won't be the first American titles and the the old, you know, Republic titles of the world. But there's it's know, a legal the, framework as well that has to be changed here in the US. Yeah, difficult. I agree. Totally. Well, no doubt about it. There's an economist named Hernando de Soto. And I forgot that the book he wrote, the title of the book. But he said that one of the largest problems facing people in the developing world is that they can't get title yeah. to what they own to their homes. Yeah. And if you can't get title to your homes, then you can't raise capital. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge problem. And maybe yeah. someone could go in, into these areas and um, create a framework using blockchain I, to I allow people not. to show that. I think you're, I, I, I totally agree with you. And, and I'll like add to what you're saying because where we're seeing the, the highest adoption of Bitcoin as a as a store of value and a currency is in these third world countries, right? El Salvador, Argentina, is, right? Argentina is on that list. Uh, you know, Panama, but El Salvador is like taking the lead officially. About it, officially. Right. And then I, did, I read an article about Nigeria. You know, everybody knows Nigeria for all the like crazy scams that they do. What's not so well known about Nigeria is that they're incredibly entrepreneurial 
and like trading internationally. But they're having the, yeah. the, the there's a story I read about uh, people who bought and sold cars to import into Nigeria because mm. getting cars is like a hard thing, right? Nobody makes them, and you know there's not Ford dealer around the corner, that kind of thing. So people are buying cars in like U.S. and Canada, importing them, shipping them over to Nigeria. Well, their currency, the whatever the name of the Nigerian currency, was so bad it just lost value constantly. It was constantly debauched and printed, and you know. I mean, the government was, you know, hugely corrupt. What they were doing is they were putting money on gift cards that they would then transfer the balance on a on a gift card to their representative in Canada. And that person would take that money off the gift card and go to the auction to buy the car and then, you know, use that capital to to do. And so they were doing that to bypass the Nigerian banking system. And of course, you'd have to be in the Nigerian currency to be in the banking system. And so once Bitcoin became more well known, that immediately, you know, stopped the gift card thing because now you could send money in Bitcoin, which was still challenging because the government desanctioned it, right? Prohibited it. But then I was reading in the last few weeks that the, the, you know, speeches were being made by the Nigerian, you know, economic minister or whatever, and starting to like turn the corner on Bitcoin as, eh, maybe we should think about this because I could think they could see it was going to happen anyways. And then there's a, a system called the Lightning Network, which is basically you, know, you got the Bitcoin layer and this sort of sits on top of that to, to make more efficient transactions and an app associated with that called Strike created by a guy named Jack Maulers. And now all of a sudden, Jack is building these nodes in different countries where now people can send money from any country to any other country. And it starts out in the currency locally, transfers across the Lightning Network and the Bitcoin Network, and then goes out the other end in the person's local currency or whatever currency they choose. Man, as soon as that, uh, and that's built in El Salvador, uh, it's like some European countries, but as soon as that's adopted more widely in countries like Nigeria... I mean, man, all bets are off. So what my point is, really long point is, these people will be natively on the blockchain, on their phones, transacting in Bitcoin or whatever cryptocurrency they decide to transact in. So now holding, you know, title the property on a blockchain will be a like, of course, like that's, mm -hmm. I'm already doing that. Now it happens to be, you know, digital store of value vis-a-vis -vis Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever. But you could see, and they don't have it, so there's nothing, there's like a vacuum, and that blockchain can step into that, and they don't have that private property rights. Like one of the things in those books I described is when people have confidence in their economic system, particularly in the value of money in the future, they'll start to plan over longer time periods. Like, you know, in a country that has a debauched currency and high inflation, it's studied people have less kids because they're worried about the immediate future and they don't know how they're going to take care of their family now. So I'm not having kids. Whereas if you have a stable economic you know, situation, money particularly, they have a long time preference. They now, okay, I can plan five years and 10 years out because I'm not afraid that my money will be worth, you know, 50% less or 99% less or whatever crazy. Now we've had the same thing, you know, if you look at the value of the dollar in the US since like the 1930s, it's gone down by like 98% or something crazy like that. But that's been much slower. And so people, they sort of get used to it. You know, it's the old boiling frog, you know, allegory of, you know, you just don't know what's happening to you. But I think uh, books like the ones I've talked about today, when people read those, it'll really it'll, sort of mind blowing a little bit. You go, oh, that's why stuff happens. That's why in Greece, when their currency fell, they had huge riots and, 
you know, you thought it was some political disruption and it was a political disruption, but why was it happening and why is it happening here? Right. So just as examples and all over the world, I mean, this is a, this is a global issue now, but uh, you know, new era, man, we're in the most like rapidly changing environment. Like, you know, you and I have probably ever seen, but I think even looking at historically, I think we're at like a historic inflection point. I agree. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Yeah. I will link to you and UTH and as well as your book recommendations today. Fantastic. I love having the conversation with you. Thanks so much. You can find Scott's contact information in the show notes. We'll also leave a link to the books he recommended. Thank you for listening to this episode of In-Depth Commercial Real Estate. You can reach us at info at in-depthrealestate.com.